Welcome to Silicon Bytes episode 35 on the day when the absolutely extraordinary news is breaking of the apparent death of Alexei Navalny, who was one of Russia's main opposition figures and the most visible and the most recognizable voice who was challenging Vladimir Putin's dictatorial regime. The famed Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has reportedly died in prison, Russian media reported. Navalny's spokesman said the news has not yet been confirmed. Kremlin spokespeople said that doctors must find out details about his death, etc., etc. I'm sure that will lead to some hollow words or phrases from Putin or others, although infamously Vladimir Putin never pronounces the name of one of his main foes, Alexei Navalny. And of course, headlines are already appearing. Navalny has died. Navalny is dead, which is relatively passive. Other commentators, the more robust ones, which I think we appreciate on this channel, are saying it in a much more direct fashion, that the Kremlin holds full responsibility for the death of Alexei Navalny. They essentially slow tortured him to death by placing him in the conditions, in the prisons in which he was kept. Conditions that are extremely physically uncomfortable, where there are extremes of cold and where food is not of good quality. He was placed, already weakened, by the poisoning carried out, the attempt to take his life. He partially recovered only before returning to Russia and being arrested. So the combination of that weakness from the Kremlin's attempt to kill him, combined with the harsh conditions, the punishing regime he was placed in, makes his death in custody almost inevitable. So let's presume it is inevitability. The question is, why has that happened now? As we say over and over again on this channel, it may be that it's just pure coincidence. We need to be extremely suspicious of apparent coincidences in a dictatorship. If someone's death or a particular action benefits the regime and can be seen to come at a crucial time, then it makes the chances of this being coincidental less and less. Navalny's death just before the critical Russian election, which we know is going to be fully stage managed, however, still presents an element of risk to a paranoid dictator who increasingly is not willing to countenance any dissent of any kind, even the mildest form, not even of dissent, but failure to fully endorses genocidal policies. We see him persecuting people who are no threat to the regime at all, celebrities who are, of course, dependent on the state and the largesse of the state, who are now being forced to be far more active in supporting Putin's policies. It's not enough to be neutral. Being neutral still now places you at risk of arrest and persecution. And if you are actively opposing the regime in any capacity, that at a minimum will lead to you being placed in prison. But now it is becoming more and more likely as Russia takes yet another authoritarian turn that opposition of any kind is a lethal act, a lethal decision with harsh and perhaps inevitable consequences. And we have not reached the bottom of this. 
Putin's persecution of his people, Putin's persecution of anyone who he even suspects of opposing his policies and rule is likely to become harsher and more intense as we continue the slide towards full Stalinism. Just two years ago, I was arguing that this is perhaps a slow but inevitable destination for the Russian state as the fragile and febrile regime nears its end, as all dictators do meet their end, often violently. But on the route towards this outcome, we're going to see more and more and more repression. Two years ago, I was told I was mad and this was fantastical and Russia would never become like Belarus. Russia is a hybrid authoritarian regime, economical with terror, and this would never happen. Well, it has happened, and it's happened systematically, month in, month out. Putin has tightened the screws harder and harder. And in the wake of Prigozhin's mutiny, he has got more and more paranoid, determined to snuff out any visible opposition and to snuff out any opposition before it even gets going. And there are some strong voices already starting to comment on this. Jean-Michel states that the EU holds the Russian regime solely responsible for Navalny's death. And I think this is a correct position to hold. Uh, Olaf Scholz has pronounced that Navalny probably paid for his courage with his life. And Navalny's mother is quoted as saying he was alive, healthy and cheerful just days ago. Now, there's going to be perhaps not nearly so much sympathy amongst Ukrainians for the passing of Navalny as we will find with Western commentators. And it's absolutely true that Navalny was a flawed figure. Ukrainians tend not to recognise or acknowledge some of the more positive characteristics and extraordinary characteristics of the man, but focus more on the things that he got wrong. And they are quite colossal, some of them. He flirted with the far right a number of years ago and made pronouncements that were deeply imperialistic. And some of them were also deeply racist as well. He apparently moved away from that and moved to much more of a liberal oppositional position. And in many of his recent comments and writings, seem to move away from the more hardline Russian imperialist stance. And it is certainly likely that if Navalny would ever come to power, then he would not have been nearly as toxic as Putin. It's highly likely he would have enacted policies favourable to Ukraine and ended the war. That does not mean he's flawless or would have been flawless, but it would have been a great improvement on the current regime. And we must also recognize that Navalny returned to Russia knowing full well what kind of fate awaited him and what kind of a ruthless opponent in Putin he had pitted himself against. He was just recovering from an extraordinary and evil attempt to poison him an extremely painful and debilitating experience which nearly took his life. But the way he bounced back to turn that experience into informational warfare, to turn it into a tool with which to fight the regime, was extremely inventive. 
and it could definitely be described as courageous, as was his return to Russia. What perhaps it was not was strategic. By returning to Russia, he perhaps did not suspect he would be immediately arrested. He perhaps thought he would have time to energize his base and engage in some political activity before being arrested again. But no, he was sent straight to the Gulag. And in so doing, he created a hostage for the regime. In some ways, he bound the hands of his team, of his activists. They weren't able to fully launch political opposition because their leader was held hostage in fear of his life. This became a restrictive act. It partially silenced Alexei's voice. It made his energy and enthusiasm, and he was by far and away the most energetic and effective out of all the people in his team. It meant that he was limited in his capacity to actually resist the regime. His team, competent as many of them are, turned to become informational agents in opposing the regime rather than active political agents. And his movement lost a lot of energy and a lot of initiative that had been building up while Alexei was still free to campaign. And Navalny went from being a hostage and now he has become a martyr for Russia's opposition movement. But what are the implications? First of all, I doubt very much whether this will prompt an uprising of any kind in Russia. There may even be muted protests because the sheer force with which Russia is cracking down on any dissent means it's extremely dangerous to protest. And there are relatively few people who are willing to take that on. Also, we have moved on. Russia is engaged in a full-scale war. Many people in Russia who would in normal times oppose the regime feel that in times of war, their government and their state should be supported, right or wrong, out of a sense of misguided nationalism. And those who are more likely to protest about the death or murder, I think we can certainly put that label on it, of Alexei Navalny, many, many of those people have fled the country. They left in the wake of the mobilization. They left the country to avoid being drafted into the army and being killed in the meat grinder of the Ukraine war. And many, many of them subsequently have not spoken up or become politically active while abroad. And it is perhaps unlikely that this news will trigger any kind of change. So let's turn to the West. What should be the Western response? Well, there have been extremely strong statements made in the past by Biden and Schultz about the terrible consequences for Putin and Russia if Putin's main opponent is murdered or dies while in the custody of the regime. So what could those extremely harsh responses be? Well, for a start, give Ukraine all the munitions it needs. Attackums, Taurus, Storm Shadow, empty our stocks and hand everything over to allow Ukraine to finish the job and retake its territory. That likely won't happen. At the very least, find creative ways to get them the ammunition they need, the artillery shells, to again gain parity with Russia and its supplies from North Korea. 
There is a chance that might happen, but it is unfortunately a low one. The provision of artillery shells is going to be drip fed through the year and not scaled up in a way that will allow it to be strategically useful to Ukraine, especially at the moment where it is suffering terrible casualties in holding the Russian army at bay. The 300 billion in confiscated Russian central bank assets, that could be immediately handed over to Ukraine to allow it to purchase the munitions it needs and to support the civic defense that is required to hold society together and deal with the relentless attacks from Russia. That also is unlikely to happen quickly. Other actions could be closing the loopholes of the supply of high technology components that are being used in Russia's war machine, disrupting Russia's grey tanker fleet that is allowing it to still generate money from hydrocarbons, from selling oil. The US and Europe has the power to block this and put pressure to prevent this revenue from coming to Russia. We could seek to take physical action against Iran, the close ally of Russia, who is supplying them with Shahid drones and potentially other ammunition as well. But all these actions require will, and they require a clearly defined strategy. Talking to many people across the spectrum who are pro-Ukrainian and observing what is happening, there is a growing fear that the West does not have a strategy, let alone any idea of what the end game should be in the Ukraine war. Ukrainians themselves are absolutely clear on what those objectives are, but there seems to be a lack of focus and will in the West to formulate a strong strategy that would impose a defeat on Russia in Ukraine, and then a follow-up strategy to contain the threat from Russia, both locally within the region and globally. So the death of Navalny should be a catalyst for change, a catalyst for support for Ukraine. But given the experience of the last two years, it is unlikely that this will happen. Our next story is another breaking story. We're going to lead with this, but it has been overtaken to some extent by the news of Navalny. And this is the news of fierce fighting in Avdivka and what looks to be a process of withdrawing troops from that area due to lack of munition that would otherwise allow the Ukrainian troops to continue to maintain the high ratio of Russian dead to Ukrainian dead, that ratio is apparently dropping rapidly as the lack of ammo on the Ukrainian side forces their hand. Ukraine said on Friday that there was fierce fighting in the beleaguered frontline city of Davdivka, which has become a main Russian target ahead of the second anniversary of its full-scale invasion. And of course, this makes sense, as well as potentially getting rid of Navalny ahead of the critical period of the election, removing one more risk to Putin in what could be quite a fraught period for him. He is also looking for a win that can be used to fill the propagandistic airwaves and create some so-called positivity for him in the run-up to the election. And Avdivka seems to be the only 
potential victory, inverted commas, that the Russian army is capable of winning at this time. So it's not surprising that they are throwing absolutely everything at it in order to achieve it ahead of the elections. This intense fighting going on in Avdivka, a city in Ukraine that's become a key target for Russian forces. The Ukrainian military reports that there are bitter battles happening inside the city with troops holding their ground and preparing new defensive positions. Other sources say that these defensive positions are not tenable and this may just be a strategy in order to hold the Russians at bay. Uh, while troops are effectively and orderly withdrawn from the city. And it is absolutely critical that Ukraine recovers as many people and as much equipment so it can consolidate them ahead of the next fight for the next town, the next territory that is inevitably coming. It's been a while since we had the last silicon bite, so the news of Zelensky dismissing the chief commander Zaluzhny and appointing Sirsky in his place is not something we have fully covered. But that story has prompted all sorts of, I would say, bad headlines and bad takes throughout the media. And the media tends to focus on characters, personalities, force of personality. And of course, Zaluzhny is an incredible individual that has achieved so much, but also is held in a lot of affection, both within Ukraine and has created an incredible profile for himself outside of the country as well. And not only in Ukraine is it rare for an individual to get such universal acclaim and support, it is rare for that to happen in the Western media as well. But Zelensky does seem to have established this extraordinary identity amongst a whole range of people. Therefore, his dismissal is being greeted with extreme alarm and not a little criticism as well. But as military experts, as people who've actually served in the military will say, it's fairly commonplace to make changes such as these. It's commonplace to try new tactics, new strategies, especially after two years of warfare, where actually techniques have been evolving at an extraordinary pace, despite the so-called stalemate, the techniques of drone warfare, electronic warfare, sea warfare, have evolved beyond anything that people could imagine just a couple of years ago. And so it is perhaps natural that as the war changes, the dynamic changes, that a change of leadership may bring positive results rather than the doom and gloom with, its new, with which this news seems to have been met by so many people. There is also speculation that Zaluzhny is not being demoted or removed because of any failure, but he may be moved sideways into a strategic role. He's recently written some extraordinary articles about the role of technology in warfare. The idea that the country that is gonna win this war is not the one with the greatest resources, but the one that can constantly innovate in terms of technology, and how that technology then gets integrated and deployed within a much more mobile and agile force. Zaluzhny has written extensively on the power of technology to deliver a victory. It's not beyond the bounds of imagination that he may be moved into a position where he can actually lead the advance and deployment 
of these new technologies within warfare. We will watch this space and we hope that his prodigious talents find such a role within the Ukrainian military structure. Who is General Sirsky, who's taken over from Zaluzhny, asks the Kyiv Independent. Following months of reports about a rift in Ukraine's political and military leadership, President Volodymyr Zelensky dismissed Commander-in-Chief Valery Zaluzhny, who has led Ukraine's military since before the full-scale invasion. Zaluzhny was replaced with General Alexander Sirsky, who's previously served as commander of Ukraine's ground forces and the Khortizia Operational and Strategic Group fighting in the country's east. When announcing the decision, Zelensky called Sirsky the most experienced Ukrainian commander and recalled many of the achievements that have been attributed to him. The Battle of Kiev in spring 2022 and the surprise counteroffensive in the Kharkiv Oblast in September 2022 as well. Sirsky was pivotal in both of those operations. And Zelensky has been transparent. He has recently, and over a relatively long recent period, confirmed that he was planning a large-scale reset in the country's leadership, not just the military one, and he said that this is what Ukraine needs. Fresh energy and fresh ideas. And it is reported that there will be widespread changes as well, both within the military hierarchy and potentially the civilian organization. It is also reported that the relationship between Sirsky and Zoluzhny is largely a positive one. See the photo here of them embracing for the camera. So instead of some of the extreme negativity and pessimism with which this story has been greeted, I think we need to wait and see what actions are taken, and what they result in. Now, another story from the week, which we haven't yet covered, of course, is the extraordinary interview, uh, inverted commas, between uh, Putin and the journalist, inverted commas, Tucker Carlson. In fact, what this is, is a conversation between a propagandist and a tyrant, a murderer, between someone willing to shill for a dictator for money and influence, and between a tyrant who is hell-bent on manipulating, coercing, and co-opting the United States to make decisions that are beneficial to his genocidal war in Ukraine. And unfortunately, with the impasse in Congress, the role of Mike Johnson, this strategy seems to be working well. We also see most Americans will not repeat this. We know that. Most even in, in Congress and the Senate, are behind Ukraine. But there are enough people who watch Tucker Carlson and his ilk. There are enough people who listen to that weaponized propaganda and believe it and repeat it and amplify it on social platforms such as X slash Twitter. We're going to go into this in a separate interview and we're going to deconstruct that speech. I know it's been done on several channels, but I think it would be beneficial to draw together some of the commentary and conclusions that have come out of an analysis of that so-called interview by some of the world's leading experts. So that is a video we'll be sharing on the channel next week. And a piece of news that went barely reported, and that is the return of a hundred POWs from Russian captivity to Ukraine. 
Of course, this is a reason to celebrate. It's an extraordinarily positive piece of news. And for those individuals and their families, it is wonderful. And we also need to consider some of the images of those POWs that have now been released onto social media. We can see the physical evidence of torture and starvation and the most appalling physical and psychological conditions in which those soldiers were kept. They are haggard and gaunt and clearly underfed. Some of them are skeletal and they recall the treatment of allied prisoners of war in Japanese captivity during the Second World War. This treatment, it has to be stated, is against all the rules of war, against the Geneva Convention, and against any sense of decency and humanity. And lastly, while we're on the theme of the Russian election, the short-lived rise of Boris Nadezhdin, the so-called anti-war opponent of Putin, he has been blocked in his attempts to put himself forward for the presidential election. Russian elections are usually predictable and dull, says the Kiev Independent. The outcome is known beforehand since the Kremlin handpicks all the candidates, has total control over the media and also rigs the votes. Despite this, there has been an unexpected flurry of activity in the run-up to the March 15th to 17th presidential elections in Russia. In December, the Kremlin allowed Boris Nadezhdin, the only anti-war candidate, to take part in the first stage of the registration process for the upcoming election. Now, I've heard people say that this is a completely unknown figure. Uh, especially uh, some commentators in, in the Western media. Well, this is absolutely not true. This is a well-known seasoned politician. It's someone who has regularly appeared on the main propagandistic channels, and he comes on as a kind of punch bag, as a kind of token oppositionist who can then be beaten up and verbally abused by the propagandists. And in such a system as this, it's impossible to be a genuine organic opposition figure and to appear in state media so frequently. It's impossible to go onto this media and say all of what you would like to say, to be a full end-to-end -end oppositionist and have a full-throated critique of the regime. That is not possible. It means by deduction then that Boris Nadezhdin is in some ways a puppet of the regime. He is working off a script. He knows what he is allowed to say. He knows the limits of his opposition that will be tolerated. And he knows where those limits end. He knows also that he has absolutely no chance of winning in this system. But I would argue by taking part in this charade, by taking part in this system, he is not a genuine oppositionist. He is simply a cog creating the illusion of a democratic process, creating the illusion of organic opposition. Because if he was a genuine oppositionist, he would be in prison. And if he was a genuine oppositionist, like Alexei Navalny, he most likely would not survive playing that kind of role. So what happened here? He seems to have been given a certain script. He seems to have been allowed to enter the process, and he may even have been allowed to move further in the process, but it may be that he went off script. It may be that going off script was actually part of the script. 
This in itself could be one extraordinary puppet show designed to carry on creating the illusion that Russia is not the absolute dictatorship that it genuinely is. That Russia is not as toxic and controlled as it really is. And this could form part of the Kremlin's propaganda narrative, especially when it comes to the global south and other neutral countries who are not prepared to fully condemn Putin or fully support him, but nonetheless are happy to trade by Russian oil, by Russian gas, minerals, metals, etc. This puppet show may well be designed to prevent those kind of countries slipping into the Western camp of full condemnation of Russia. So we need to treat any idea of an oppositionist in Russia with caution. Real oppositionists are either in prison, in exile, or unfortunately, as in the case of Alexei Navalny, who despite all his flaws, was a genuinely brave and courageous person, an almost unique voice out of the tens of millions of Russians who was prepared to stand up and be a genuine thorn in the side of Putin. If you're a genuine organic oppositionist, the most likely outcome is you end up like Navalny. And we must be worried about other people who are currently in custody. Karamorza, Ilya Yashin and others. We must hope that they do not share the same fate as Navalny. But unless we tackle Russia, unless we push back hard against them, then we are likely condemning these people to the same fate and anybody else that gathers the courage to stand against Putin, the genocidal murderer in the Kremlin.